I grew up going to a very small Christian school in San Antonio, Texas. And when I say small, I'm not kidding around. Uh, there were 175 students in this school, and that was from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. So a graduating class of six right here. Very small Christian school. But man, we were one of those, we were one of those serious Christian schools, right? From kindergarten all the way through 12th grade, we had chapel five days a week. Every school day there, all the all the school from the kindergartners up through the seniors, we'd gather together in the church auditorium for a chapel service. And lots of times the teachers at the school would, would lead those services, but they'd also bring in a lot of guest speakers. And I remember one guest speaker in particular was a, a, an older woman that had grown up and lived in Eastern Europe. And she had lived there in the days before the Iron Curtain fell. So she had the experience of being a Christian uh, of trying to follow Christ in a country where that was not allowed, uh, where in a country that was controlled by communism, where atheism is the religion and believing in Christ is frowned upon. And one aspect of that is that Bibles were very scarce. And if you had one of these, I mean, that was contraband. This was something that had to be carefully guarded. And I mean, this is a different sermon for a different time, but how thankful should we be at all the access we have to God's Word. But in one particular situation in her church, there was one Bible to go around, and the persecution was ramping up, so they kind of had to go into hiding. And basically it was, all right, everybody take a page. We're going we're to start dividing this Bible up, so, different, so you're not going without anything here. Here's a page. Hold on to this page of Scripture. And for a while, that, that was all that that woman had of her Bible was one page of the scripture. And if I remember correctly, it was like a page from, from 1 Kings somewhere. But that was all that she had of scripture. I remember one question that that story has made me think from time to time. If, if persecution was ramping up here and we were like, hey guys, this is the last one we've got left. We're all going into hiding. Hey, here's a page for you and here's a page for you. Which page would you want? You know, if we were passing it around and you were like, all right, what, what, what can I take out of here. Which page of scripture would you want to take? So that was what you had. And I think if, we were, if that was the situation, and thankfully I, I doubt we'll face this particular situation, so I guess it's a little hypothetical, but I think I would take the Bible and I would say, is Colossians 3 still there? Because if it is, I'm taking that one. Because this chapter is so rich, and I think even if, if somebody asked me, hey, what is the Christian life about? What does it look like can you point me somewhere in Scripture that spells that out? I would say, let's go to Colossians chapter 3. And I've done that many times when I'm talking to a new believer. They're, they're, they're saying, all right, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior. I, I put my faith in Him. Now what? I say, well, why don't you study and let's talk through together Colossians chapter 3. But what's amazing is that's not a conversation I only have with new believers. I, I end up in this passage so much with People that have been believers for a long time. I mean, just this week, I was kind of in a counseling situation with somebody, and it was, there, were, there were some complex things about this situation that we were talking through, but in the end, we came to, well, let's go to Colossians chapter 3. What, what is it telling us as believers to do? And really, even though there's some complicated things about this situation, this is what we need to do. We need to commit to doing what God has said right here in his word for believers and trust that he will work through that. 
This chapter, it tells us as Christians, this is how you need to think. It tells you, hey, these are the things you need to avoid and stop doing. It says, hey, these are the things and the attitudes that we need to do. And then it even gets into, this is how it plays out for you as husbands and you and wives, as children and kids and in the workplace, applying God and his word to all of those situations. So we're, we're diving into Colossians 3 today, and really we're going to spend the, the rest of the summer moving through this chapter, seeing how God tells us, his people, to think and to live. So I want to invite you to take your Bible and open up to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We started Colossians chapter 1 on the first day of this church, and now we have made it halfway there. We've gone through chapter 1 and chapter 2, and today we're diving into chapter 3, and we're going to look at the first four verses. Follow along as I read those. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, in this passage, we see some phrases that talk about things that have happened. We see some directives even telling us about what we should be doing right now. And we see some statements that are still to come in the future But I want to start by focusing your attention on two past tense phrases that really become the foundation for what this passage is telling us to do. First is right there at the beginning of verse 1. If then, or you could even say since then, you have been raised with Christ. And the other one there is at verse 3, beginning of verse 3, where it says, For you have died. This passage is saying, if you are a Christian, you have died and you have been raised with Christ. I mean, this is radical language. And I don't think we think about it as much. I read one story this week about two sisters that uh, got saved at the same time. And really, they got pulled out of a a very worldly lifestyle that was dominated by the party scene and getting into all kinds of sin there. But they gave their life to Christ. And then pretty soon after that, another invitation to a party came. And they sent their RSVP saying, we regret that we cannot attend because we recently died. (laughs) That was how they let them know. And we, we think of that as like, whoa, that's a strange way to put it. But really, that's the language, that's the dramatic language that the Bible uses to describe what becoming a Christian is like. You have died. There was an old you that is dead now. And you have been raised with Christ. This is an amazing thing. And we need to start by thinking this way. Point number one, understand the transformation Jesus brings. Understand the transformation that Jesus brings. And just to remind us, I mean, we we move through lots of times in preaching slowly through a book. The Bible, and I think there's good reasons for do, to do that, but let's remember what was said just really a few verses before what we're reading today. Listen again or look along in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. 
where it says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the language that we consistently see in Scripture. Drastic analogies saying you were dead, but now you're alive. You were blind, but now you can see. You used to have a heart of stone. Now you have a heart of flesh. You used to be a slave, and now you're free. It's a radical change that happens when somebody puts their faith in Christ. And this passage that we're looking at, Colossians 3, 1 through 4, the main thrust of it is talking about there needs to be a change in the way that you think. But the foundation for that is you have to understand that there is already a radical change that has happened inside of you. And now you need to think that way out. But the Bible is always clear. Getting saved or becoming born again is a drastic thing. And I don't think that's something our culture, both outside the church and inside the church, really understand. Uh, I mean, I remember this was back in the presidential election of 2016. Bernie Sanders wins the New Hampshire primary. And I remember seeing an article in the news the next day saying, Bernie Sanders, the first non-Christian to ever win a presidential primary. And I'm like, say what? And then I'm like, well, I guess... Everybody else that has won a presidential primary has checked some kind of box saying, well, I'm a Christian of this tradition or whatever. But I think I would look and say, does that mean that every other person who'd ever won a presidential primary before that was a believer in Jesus Christ, had been born again? I don't think so. But our culture doesn't understand that. There's a lot of confusion, and there's two particular things that I want us to be very clear about when we understand this transformation of becoming a Christian. And the first misconception that I think there's so much of, even in our society, is the idea that I can be a Christian without being transformed. That I can be a Christian without there being a change in my life. Another thing on the back of your worksheet every week, uh, there's some recommended resources, or lots of times it's just books that, Go along with the topic of the sermon that I think might be helpful, especially for those of you that are eager, maybe looking for something to read. And uh, the back, one of them on the back this week is a book by John Piper called Finally Alive. And at the beginning of the book, it discusses this survey that, w- that was done. And the result of the survey, the headline was, born-again Christians just as likely to divorce as are non-Christians. And that was kind of the headline, but then it went into all kinds of specific actions, basically saying there's no difference among people who are born again and people who aren't born again. And when you looked at the fine print of the survey, they weren't really asking people, hey, are you born again? Yes, and then asking the questions. They were giving people the title of born again if they said they had a personal commitment to Jesus Christ and they thought they were going to go to heaven when they died. And he starts that book by saying, I think the headline of the study got it wrong. I think the headline should be, there's a lot of people that think they have a relationship with Christ that have never been born again. 
Because the scripture is clear, if you've been born again, there will be a transformation. There's another book I was reading this week. I didn't recommend it on the back of the worksheet because it's basically the, the testimony of an apostate. Somebody that grew up in a, a strong Bible teaching environment, or so they said, that has basically abandoned the, the central truths of God's word. And one critique they had of Christianity was Christianity seems so irrelevant because it's all about, you know, just giving, you're getting saved from your sin and it's almost like that's no good until you die and then that kicks in and you don't go to hell, but you go to heaven. And I'm like, well, number one, that's, if that's what you've been taught Christianity is, that's a problem. And I think there's probably a lot of places somebody could go and basically get that's what Christianity is all about, that it's just about, you know, you get transferred from, you know, the hell filing cabinet to the heaven filing cabinet, and now your afterlife is good. We'll see you then. Have a nice life. That's not what the Bible says. Listen to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, making sure that people have a get-out-of-hell-free card. Wait, oh, that's not what it says. Bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And then it does go on in the next verses to talk about waiting for Jesus to come back in heaven. That's certainly part of the Christian life. But the Bible almost makes it clear, putting your faith in Christ and Jesus came not just so that we could go to heaven when we die, but also that we might live a different life right here right now or even shooting very straightforward first john chapter 3 verse 6 says no one who abides in him in christ keeps on sinning no one who keeps on sinning has ever has either seen him or known him and as you look at the surrounding verses and even you, you look at the verb tense when it says keeps on sinning because you kind of raise your eyebrow and say, well, what does that mean? It's not saying, hey, Christians will never sin again in their life. The idea is that they, they keep on. Christians are not just going to, well, I used to be this way and now I'm a Christian and I'm just living the same life of sin that I used to live. John's trying to say, no, that is impossible. And there's even other parts of the letter that remind us, no, we're not perfect. We're not sinless, but we will, if we're Christians, sin less. There will be a change of direction in our life, and if there's no change of direction, we don't know Jesus. If there is no transformation in your life, you can't really say, well, I'm really a Christian. If there is no transformation, there is no salvation. And that's not really my opinion. That's straight out of God's word. And I think that's a misconception that a lot of people have that we need to get corrected by God's word. But then that leads us to a second misconception that I think really is a big point of our passage. And the, the second misconception is that a lot of people think, I can achieve this transformation. I can do this. If I stop doing the bad things and start doing the good things, I will be transformed. When the Bible teaches, no, you cannot accomplish this transformation. Jesus alone can accomplish this transformation. So even if you're sitting here this morning and you feel the sting of conviction, you say, I'm at church here, I say I follow Christ, but there has been zero change in my life. 
the answer is not, well, then let's, let's whip up that, that transformation. Let's go. This week, you better try a lot harder. You better do a lot better. And then maybe next week you can come and say, I, I see a little change. No, that is not Christianity either. And that's really what we've seen so much of in the book of Colossians. It's all about Jesus and what he has done. But a lot of people, they, they try to do it themselves. Either, I mean, verse 2 talked about rules and regulations. People think, well, if I just do these external things, then I'll be good with God. Or if I just try really hard to be a good person, then I'll be okay. When the language here is all about union with Christ, that he lived the perfect life you couldn't live. He died on the cross to forgive you of your sin, and he rose again so that you might be filled with power to live a new life. And the path to that transformation doesn't come through all your human effort. It comes through, I'm going to turn from my sin and put my faith in Jesus Christ, and then he will change me from the inside out. It's like, think about a, a light switch, right? When the switch gets flipped, the light turns on. The, the light just can't say itself, oh, shine, come on now, get some light going, right? No, the switch has to be flipped, and then the light will shine. And if the light's not on, the first thing you're going to do is, is the switch been flipped? But when the switch has been flipped, the light will shine. And that is what happens when we become a Christian in Christ, because we are now connected with him, his death and resurrection, the switch has been flipped and now the light turns on. And basically, a lot of what we see in the New Testament when it starts telling us, okay, this is how you live. Stop doing these things. Start doing these things. Basically, what it's saying is the switch has been flipped. Now shine. A lot of what the New Testament is saying when it's telling us how to live the Christian life is be who you already are in Christ. You have died with Christ, you've been raised with Christ, now go and live that out. And that's what we're going to see so much through the rest of the chapter. It's saying the reality of your heart has been changed. You were dead, now you are alive because of what Christ has done, so now go and live like it. And what we really see in verses 1 through 4 is saying the first step of living like you've been transformed by Christ is thinking that way. Where he says that there's two pretty synonymous commands in these first two verses. The first one in verse 1, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Right? That's an internal action. Your heart, your desires need to be towards these things. Verse 2, the second command, set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. He's saying you've been born again to an eternal life. Think that way. Focus on those things. Or let's put it this way for point number two. View this life through the lens of heaven. View this life through the lens of heaven. I mean, you see me up here every week, and every week I'm wearing glasses. Because if I took them off, I mean, I can tell that there's people at church, but I don't know who any of them are. I mean, some of you, like Charlie, you've got a big enough beard where I'm like, okay, I think I know who that is, right? But I, I can't recognize any of you. I remember I had a, back at the, at the old church, I used to 
work at, I had a gym membership, and there were several other guys from the church that would go to this same gym, and I'd always run into them, not, you know, out working out. It seemed like it was always in the locker room, like going into the shower, coming out of the shower while I'm standing at the sink, shaving, whatever, and they're like, oh, hey, Pastor Ben, and I'm like, hey, and I'm thinking, I have no idea who this person is because I can't see their face, right? And I'm like, I hope they don't get offended that I don't recognize them. It's not that I don't know their faces, that I literally can't tell who in the world it is. But when I put these on, it's like, whoa, okay, now I know who's here today. Now I know what is going on. And what we're seeing in God's word is when we put on the glasses of the things above, when we think about heavenly realities, we're actually going to see the things in this life a whole lot more clearly. Focusing on heavenly things will put your present life into focus because you now have a life, like verse 3 tells us, that is hidden with Christ in God. And as you focus on that, it will change your perspective. I mean, even if you just thought more about the reality of heaven, that you, if your faith is in Christ, will spend an eternity with him in a place of perfection and rest and joy forever, right? If you really think about that more, do you think that might have a difference on your life right here, right now? Like, for instance, do you think if you thought about that more, you might have a little more joy throughout life? Do you think you might be less stressed about things that are going on right here, right now? And whenever we talk about this, I think all of us, we have a reflex reaction. We think, yeah, that's good, but I got to be careful because I can't get so heavenly minded that I'm no earthly good. I can't just have my head up in the clouds and forget what's going on here. And I would say, I think maybe there's some people that we, we would say that, you might say that about, but I would argue it's not because they're so heavenly minded. It's that they're just not wise and they're ignoring things, necessary things, of this life, they're not viewing this life through the glasses of heaven, they're just closing their eyes and daydreaming, right? There's a difference between the two. I mean, just to put it in another way, think about going on a hike, right? A beautiful springtime Idaho day, and you're up in the foothills or somewhere going on a hike. Do you spend the entire hike staring at the ground? No, I mean, that's Part of the whole point of, of hiking is to get out somewhere where it's beautiful, right? But then in that hike, do you never look at the ground? Do you never look to see where it is that you're stepping? I, I, I hope that occasionally you do look down at the ground because if not, you're probably going to trip and eat it, right? And that's not going to be a very enjoyable hike. But what makes the hike a pleasant experience? That for most of the hike, the whole, the whole thing is shaped by you're looking around and you're drinking in the beauty of God's creation around you. Yet as you're walking, you are being careful and making sure that you're stepping in the right places where you need to step. There was a news article about a, a weird guy from San Francisco, and you might think that doesn't sound very newsworthy. Um, but there was one particular story of a a man that found a $5 bill on the sidewalk. And he, after that experience, resolved, I will never walk around the city again without my eyes being peeled on the ground, looking for what might be there. 
And it's a sad line at the end of the article where it says, at the end, this man had collected thousands of buttons, hundreds of ballpoint pens, a few dollars, a bent back, and a miserly disposition. Right? That was the end of the story. And I think that really gives us competing illustrations of what is your life going to be like. I'm going on this beautiful hike and I'm looking around at the real things around me and that's shaping the whole experience. Yes, I have to be, well, look where I'm, I'm stepping or I'm just living through life like, like this. What does your life look like? Yes, there's things, there's earthly responsibilities we can't ignore. We can't just close our eyes and think about heaven. That's not gonna pay the bills, Right? You've got bills to pay. You've got deadlines at work. Many of you, you've got responsibilities of kids who need to be signed up for school or youth camp or, or things like that. And, and these are responsibilities. But as you take these steps, are we living our whole life basking in the reality of who we are in Christ and the real things that, that pertain to heaven and our future there? Certainly, we should not say that, hey, nothing in this life matters at all. No, there are important things, but what matters most should give us perspective even as we go about those things. And I think a lot of people, when they read these verses, especially verses, verses 3 and verses 4, and they start thinking about the things above and the things not on the things that are on earth, they start thinking about heaven and the future in heaven, which I think is a totally fair conclusion to draw, and we should think more about that. But I think there's more than many people maybe would preach on this passage or study on this passage that's dealing with things right now. That when, I th- when it says, seek the things that are above, I don't think it's just talking about future things. I think it's talking about set your mind on things that are above even right now. And I'm actually pretty confident in that because verse 1 says, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's a present tense reality. And even the things above versus the things below, when you look back at chapter 2 and verse 20, when he talks about if you've died to the elemental spirits of the world, the things below, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, saying, don't just think from a human perspective. Think from a heavenly perspective. Think about the things that are true right now. And that will affect your life right now. Right now, Jesus is at the right hand of God. And scripture tells us that one of the things he is doing there at the right hand of God is he is interceding on behalf of you and me and all of his people. And Jesus even tells us some pretty amazing things like John 14, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says to his disciples, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you are setting your mind on things above, do you think that might do anything for the frequency and the fervor of your prayers here on earth? If you realize, whoa, I mean, we all know sometimes it's nice to know something, to have some connections, 
to, to have some friends in the right places that maybe when you, you, when you need something or you want to get into that concert or, or that event, you say, hey, and they're like, hey, I got you. And they, they, they hook you up with the, with the tickets or whatever it might be, right? Well, if you're a Christian, you've got connections, right? You, you can talk straight to Jesus who's seated at the right hand of God. Thinking about those heavenly realities should fuel our prayer life. And when it talks about setting your mind on things above and not on things that are on earth, I don't think on earth is mainly talking about your day-to-day responsibilities, you know, your to-do list for the week. I think probably more what he has in view would be things that um, are, are written about in 1 John chapter 2. You can just listen to this, but verses 15 through 17, if you have a kid in the, a child in the youth group, they just went over this verse uh, a couple of weeks ago. 1 John 2 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. And I listened to that message, and even one of the students was like, does that mean I can't love Doritos? Because, I mean, that's a thing in the world, right? And it's like, no, I don't think it's talking about Doritos, because, but look at what it says in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, right? These, these fleshly, worldly, sinful impulses and desires It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Right? That these are the things, when he says, not on the things of earth, these are the first things that we should think of. I should be somebody, and this is what we're going to see in the rest of Colossians, not just thinking about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, but setting my mind on Christ and seeking to become more like him. I think another thing, if we set our mind more on things above, when we looked around us and we see the people that are driving on the traffic streets of, you know, two-lane streets of Meridian or, or whatever it might be, we will see these people not just as another person in the traffic jam, but we'll see them as souls. When we think about things from a heavenly perspective and we set our minds on things above, we realize everybody is a soul. And, and everybody, what's going on with them and God? What's going to happen to them when they stand before God? Do they know Jesus Christ? I think we'd be a lot more eager evangelists if we viewed people not just as another person at our school or at our workplace or in our neighborhood, but every person as a soul in need of a Savior. Set your minds on things above. Yes, think about your heavenly future And yes, think about right now, Jesus is at the right hand of God. Heaven is real. And that should impact us. And even I was thinking last night, I was laying in bed, just kind of laying awake and, you know, getting late. So the very last daylight is is out there just kind of fading from the sky. And I was listening to a song that was talking about heaven. And, And as I was doing that, even just this overwhelming feeling of peace came over me just thinking about the reality of those things and I thought about some things that earlier in the day I was kind of concerned about they were kind of you know giving me some frustration that God had already resolved and I look back on them I was like why do sometimes I get so bothered by those things when soon and very soon I'm going to be with the one I love forever and I'll be with him and I'll be like him and even I was thinking about that and thinking about this message I was thought to myself, who, who are we kidding to think we should be concerned? I, I seek the things that are above, but not too much. I don't think really any of us have the problem of, oh, we're setting our mind on things above too much. 
think really the issue is we're not setting our minds on the things above enough. I mean, think about that day. Think about that day when you will be with Jesus and you will see his face and there will be no more suffering. There'll be no more battle with sin. It'll all be over. On that day, what are you going to look back and think? I bet you're going to look back and think like, man, I wish I hadn't been so worried all the time about my financial situation. And I wish I would have just enjoyed the things that God had given me. I think you're going to look back and and say, I wish I wouldn't have been so concerned about what that person thought about me. And it spent more of my time just trying to please Christ. And I think you'll look back and say, man, I wish I would have invested more in, in this person. I wish I would have talked more with my friends about the things of the Lord and done a better job encouraging them in their walk with Christ. I don't think we'll look back and say, you know what, I, I, I wish I had done more of this fun thing or, or, or that fun thing, even though those can be good and we can praise God in them. Think about what we're going to think on that day. And when we do, I think we're all going to say, God, help me, give me more of this heavenly mindset. I mean, this is Compass Bible Church. And so I think a compass actually provides a good analogy for what it is that we're talking about today. That when you become a Christian, there's a transformation. That you used to be following the compass of your flesh and your desires and of the world, but then you become a Christian and now the compass is pointing a different direction. And the Bible is saying, okay, follow that. And that's kind of point number one. There's a transformation. It's okay, now I've turned around and I am living differently. And point two is saying, keep following that new compass. Keep following what Christ has done in your life. But the trouble is, when that transformation happens, we turn around, but it's not that we're magically at our destination. I mean, sometimes I think we all wish that we were, right? Like, I'm saved, and I wish I could just be like Christ right now. In fact, I mean, that's probably a healthy desire that we all experience, the growing pains of the Christian life. But what point three is going to encourage us, okay, you might feel like I've turned around and I'm going this direction, but man, I'm still not where I want to be. And point three encourages us, look again at verses three and four. It says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, Now, this is future tense. You also will appear with him in glory. Point number three this morning, be encouraged by your future perfection. Be encouraged by your future perfection. If you are a Christian, it says your life is hidden with Christ in God. What does that mean? That it's hidden with Christ in God. Well, It's highlighting again that link between you and Christ. Even that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. And another implication that you should think about when you read that your life is hidden with Christ and God is security. That if you have put your faith in Christ, you are safe in him. If you remember Lord of the Rings, and if you don't remember Lord of the Rings, you should add that to your reading list ASAP. 
But you remember, Frodo, he finds this mysterious ring, and he has no idea what it is, but the wise wizard, Gandalf the Grey, he's starting to understand what it is, and he tells Frodo, as soon as he gets it, he says, keep it secret, keep it safe. And so what does Frodo do? He goes and he hides the ring to keep it safe. If you are a Christian, you are hidden with Christ in God, and therefore you are perfectly safe. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You are saved. It's like there's this picture of you are there Jesus' hand tightly around you, the Father's hand tightly around His, and you are safe in Christ. There's another aspect when it talks about us being hidden in Christ, and that we see a lot in Scripture. It talks about something that is hidden and that is, ne- that is eventually going to be revealed. And that's another aspect for you right now, that It's not revealed yet what you will be someday, right? I'm not looking out at this room or for that matter in the mirror in the morning and seeing the glory of of Christ, just fully perfect glorified people. That's not what's happening yet. You still look like you. And you know what? You still struggle with some of those same things. It is a process. But... You are hidden with Christ in God, and what you are in Christ will be revealed. Let's look at one last verse together, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 talks about a very similar idea. 1 John chapter 3, and just the first three verses there, starts off saying, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears... We may have confidence, or sorry, I'm in, still in chapter 2, verse, chapter 3, sorry, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, now listen to these next couple of phrases. You are God's children now. Right now, you are God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared. And even this term that gets used a lot in theology, right now you are living in a little bit of this state of already, but not yet. You are already God's children, but not yet has it been revealed that you are going to be just like Jesus Christ. Then it says, but we know that when he appears... We shall be like him. Right now it is hidden, but it will be revealed because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. That we were walking one way, the compass has been turned, we've turned around, we're walking a new direction, but man, we're not at our destination yet. But the scripture reminds us, hey, you will be. It's a sure 
thing if your life is hidden with Christ. So keep walking that direction. Keep going because God is assuring you you will reach your destination. He who started a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And I think we need this encouragement even before we start. Because we're going to get in in the coming weeks where it says, hey, put off these things. Put these sins to death in your life. And start doing these things. And I think if we look at those things and we say, man, there's no change in my life, we do need to, to ask, has there been any transformation? Has there been salvation in my life? But I don't think there's one person, well, I know if they're thinking, honestly, there's not one person in this room that's going to be able to go through these lists that we're about to go through without seeing, there's some room to grow. I could be less of these these sins of the flesh and more like the things that it's telling me to put on. There's room for growth in all of us. And I think before we start, we need that encouragement that ultimately my destination is secure. Keep walking that direction. And really, it's all based on what Jesus has done for us. And so we're going to celebrate communion this morning. The ushers are going to begin to to pass those things around. But we want to begin where we started even today, that we need to think differently. And we're going to see in the coming weeks, we need to live differently. But that is all based on the reality of what Christ has already done, that He lived the perfect life you couldn't live, I couldn't live. He died on the cross. We're going to drink the cup of of blessing, the, the cup to remember what Christ has done. He drank willingly the cup of wrath for us. And He rose again to give us new and eternal life. It's all based on what Christ has done. And the Bible makes it clear what we're about to do is something for believers, for those whose faith is in Christ. So even if you're here this morning and you know I'm, I'm not saved, I would encourage you just let the elements pass. Nobody's going to you know, judge you. Probably nobody's even going to notice. But even if this morning, if you're convicted and you realize there's been no transformation in my life, there's been no change, there's been no fruit, I am not saved. The good news is you can be right now. That even you could say, I I know I'm not a Christian, but you could take communion today because right now you could talk to God and say, God, there is no transformation. I am a sinner, but I know that Jesus paid it all and I know he can save me from my sins eternally in heaven and right now teaching me to live a new way. That could be you right here this morning because there's not something that you have to go do and if you do it well enough, then you'll be saved. No, Jesus has already done it. You need to put your faith in him. And for those of us that are saved, we remember what Christ has done. We reflect on what he has done. And so I want to give you a few minutes to to think about what Christ has done and even some time to examine ourselves and see if there is any sin that needs to be confessed before we take these elements together. So hold on to them and we'll take it all together as John plays as we just pray and reflect on Christ and what he's done for us. I think all of us could honestly say that and even pray, God, help me this week to set my mind more on things above 
than I did last week. And even when we, when we do this, right, we remind ourselves there's nothing mystical or magical happening when we take these elements, but that does not mean that it should not change our lives, have a real and significant effect. From in the Old Testament and the New Testament, one of God's main concerns with his people is remember. Don't forget what God has done. And see, one of the reasons we do this, a very tactile reminder that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed for us. And that he is the sufficient sacrifice for our sins. And even as we take these elements together, it should be a real reminder to us to set our minds on things above this week where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Let's take of the bread and drink of the cup together. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we praise you for the good news of Jesus Christ. We praise you for the transformation that can be ours because of what he has done. And we praise you for the good news that someone today, right here this morning, could get right with God. That there's nothing they have to go do and come back in a week and get graded on how well they did it. But right now, they could put their faith in Christ and be forgiven because he has paid the penalty. He has lived the perfect life. Lord, so we praise you for what we're reminded of right here, right now, as we take these elements. And God, we ask that you would help us. God, help us to set our mind this week more on things above. God, not just so that we can be smarter or just think more about heaven just for the sake of it, so that we could see this life more clearly. God, so we could see this week how we need to go about our earthly responsibilities, how we can grow in the likeness of Christ. God, help us to see that all clearly as we think that heaven is real. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. If we're Christians, we'll be with him forever. God, I pray that that would make us so much more useful in this world. God, and more effective and that we would change the world around us, God, because we're thinking more of eternal things, heavenly things. God, so we lift this all up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.